namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. One of the phrases that the Buddha uses is, <clears throat> in this world there is dukkha and there is the end of dukkha. <clears throat> And this word dukkha is difficult to translate, well, difficult in the sense that there's no single word that covers its meaning. Uh, dukkha in itself just means a hard place, right? So we're in a hard place. And um, it also, it seems to have been used at the time for various ways of describing things, but one of them was um, an axle in a cart <clears throat> which didn't quite fit right. And so it, it sort of scratched and made noises and went along. And that's, that's sort of an image of the way we are in the world. Hmm? Like we haven't, <laughs> haven't quite got it right. And this, um, this dukkha is not only described as uh, just the ordinary <coughs> pains and suffering of life. I mean, all the stuff that we experience here, for instance, the emotional stuff, but also, remember, the, the suffering that comes from attachment. Hmm? And uh, all that he, he calls dukkha dukkha. That's, the, <laughs> that's the, the, the unsatisfactoriness of ordinary suffering, ordinary pain, ordinary unsatisfactoriness. And then there's the suffering that comes from the idea of impermanence. The fact that uh, you know, we can't hold on to anything. That everything is disappearing. Everything, you know, a lack of control. I mean, <clears throat> with certain things it doesn't really matter to us, but when it comes to our bodies, old age, sickness and death, then it gets, you know, it gets a bit close to the bone, as you might say. So there's a whole suffering around impermanence, uh, simply because we prefer things not to change, especially when you've got it just right. Yeah? You know, the perfect day, ice cream, it's all there, <laughs> <laughs> and you just, you just don't want it to move. And then there's the more subtle uh, suffering that arises because things are compounded. Uh, and what the Buddha means by that is that nothing has any self-reality. Nothing exists of its own. It, everything is dependent on something else. And that's this interdependency. So even here now, you see, uh, we're breathing. We're dependent on the breath. We're dependent on the air in this room. And when you when you actually begin to just contemplate how dependent we are on the world around us, not just simply in terms of food and air and stuff like that, but companionship, um, uh, relationship, uh, transport, any, anything that, every part of our lives is always something dependent on something else. And that dependency uh, shows that actually what we experience ourselves to be, how we define ourselves, <clears throat> is always in terms of a relationship, a relationship with something else. 
And that's what he, that's the part of it which means it's compounded. It goes deeper than that in the sense that everything within us is also compounded. Hmm? You know, there's parts of our body that give up before other parts. I mean, you'd think the whole thing would just go all together, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> so, so then you realize that actually parts of the body also have their own little life form and are doing their own little things. Um, when you look into the body and you ask yourself, what is it you know of the body? It, I think it can be quite surprising how little we actually know of the body. I mean, you know, just we've been talking about air and breathing. I mean, have you ever experienced the exchange of oxygen for carbon dioxide? I mean, if nobody told you that, would you know? You know? Skin. You see, all, all, the, all the cells in the body have their own little life form and they're, they're all dividing and dying and whatever. Do we ever experience that? Have any control over it? Your toenail, you see. What about that? That's growing. It's growing right now. You any idea it's growing? <laughs> you any idea what your liver's doing? So there's a whole... Once you begin to ask yourself, what do I actually know about the body as an organism? Um, quite surprising. We know very little. We can move it about. It'll go up and down. <laughs> Smile, make it laugh, all that sort of thing. Uh, but actually what we know, what we directly experience with the body, is quite minimal. And it's minimal because the only thing we can know is through the mind. Now, um, that goes back to this earlier statement. In this world there is suffering and the end of suffering. So what the Buddha is saying is that this relationship that we have, it can be straightened out. We can actually get to a point where we don't suffer anymore. There's always going to be pain. The body's always going to deliver pain, <clears throat> but it's not going to make us suffer. Now, this word that he uses, in this world, in this world, when he defines in this world, he defines it as the five aggregates. And that's the way he split up the organism that we experience. So first of all, there's the body. And we'll come back to that, because it's not the body in the way that we just ex just explained it. <coughs> then there are all perceptions, all the perceptions that we have. Then there are all the feelings that we have. Hmm? Then there's what he calls these sankhara. Sankhara are the emotional and thought life that we experience. And then there's cognition, the act of holding something to know it, an act of cognition. And the reason he splits it up like this is because he's always pointing to where the problem lies. The problem doesn't lie in the body. Hmm? The body does its own thing. It's an organism, it feels, it sees, etc., etc. It doesn't lie in perception. Perception meaning those first things that we cognize in the mind. So colour, shape, sound, before it takes on a particular meaning. So <clears throat> when, I, when I look at the statue, what, what I... What I see as, as, the, as the beginning percepts are just its shape and colour. And it's an internal process that tells me it's a statue and it's a statue of the Buddha. Hmm? What he's talking about when he talks about this perception process is just that beginning process where the mind is like a sense base. And then there's feeling. Feeling, as we discover in our meditation, is just sensation. In his language, there's only one word for feeling. We've got... Uh, sensations, feeling, emotions, moods. But as far as he's concerned, it's just all 
feeling. This word Vedana. And these feelings he splits into two kinds. They're either pleasant or they're unpleasant. There is a neutral. He also points to neutral feelings. But when you actually really go into a neutral feeling, you'll see it sides slightly with being unpleasant or slightly with being pleasant. And there's a further split in the sense that he says that some of these feelings are coming from the body, what we would call sensations, and some are coming from the mind, what we would call emotions. Emotional feelings, that is. So <clears throat> this Vedana is simply telling us, that, that, that those first three are telling us that there's a contact with the physical world. And this physical contact allows us to create percepts in the mind. These percepts are also memory. It's a memory bank as well. Eh? And it creates a certain uh, feeling tone to the world. Pleasant and unpleasant. All that is given. I mean, that's part and parcel of being a human being. But as you know, depending on our faculties, I mean, if we're blind, that's one avenue of experience that's not open to us. And we can, uh, we can develop certain senses. So, uh, you know, a painter, uh, an artist would, would develop the sense of sight, a musician, the sense of, a sense of sound, of hearing, you see. The third one, sorry, the fourth one, this Sankara, you see, he separates that out as the point where we create. Because in the midst of that Sankara, we have this power called will. Is that the end of the world? Not yet. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> Sounded bad, didn't it? So, <laughs> so you got these sankara, and the core thing about sankara is will. Chaitana. Now, <clears throat> will is not intention. So this is something that you can um, you can you know, investigate yourself when you're doing standing meditation, for instance. Just to stand still and establish that stillness, and then allow the intention to arise. So just saying it, right? Uh, sometimes when, we, when I say intention, um, people think it has to be some big emotional thing, you know, like intending to walk, it's sort of overpowering me, you know? But actually, it's just, it's just an intention. It's just like, I want to open the door. You know, it doesn't have to be a, bi- a big emotional explosion. Hmm? And you know it by simply saying, intending to walk. That's the intention, right? So when you say to yourself, intending to walk, you can feel a sort of a sort of push in the body, as it were. Hmm? You, you sort of feel a certain energy coming up, intending to walk, but nothing happens. So you just try it yourself. You can stand there forever saying, intending to walk, nothing ever happens. And then something quite magical moves, you see. Something happens, the foot moves. Hmm? So something has brought an idea, a wish, out of potential into the actual. It's actually produced an action. Hmm? Now that, that power is what the Buddha calls the will. And it's through that power that we create these sankharas, which is our emotional thought life. And um, he equates this will with karma, with, with action. Okay? Now I'm not using the word here as it's normally used, in the sense of karma, like your comeuppance, you know, like this is, your <laughs> this is what you deserve. Kama here just means an act. And the, the, uh, the technical word for, for the comeuppance, for what you get as a, resp- as, a, as a response to what you do, as a consequence to what you do, is vipaka. That's, that's the literal, those are the two words. So it's cause and then the effect. Hmm? 
or the result. And then there's this act of cognition, which you can take to mean, I mean, the way I visualise it, or the way I understand it is, uh, all the electrons hit the screen of a television. Hmm? Before it hits the screen of a television, it's completely nonsensical. But when it hits the screen of this television, you've got a picture. Okay? So all this information is coming into the brain-mind complex, and it's somehow being held as a picture, which we then know. Okay? So when you are, when in your mind you're seeing these images, right, though, to see them, that primary knowing of those images, that's the act of cognition. Okay? Now, this is where <clears throat> um, we begin to understand the Buddha when he's in the opening verse of the Dhammapada. So the Dhammapada is a little collection of verses, which is like a sort of a the Buddhist Bible, you can, you can say that. It's something that everybody reads. They're just little verses pointing, pointing to certain truths. And the first one is that my, everything is mind-made and mind is the forerunner. Okay? Now, what this means is, in the Buddha's understanding, is that everything we're experiencing is created by the mind's contact with the outside world. Okay? And, of course, with what it has engineered within itself. So, you have to be careful here because the Buddha, uh, Buddhism isn't an idealism. It, it moves towards that way in later Buddhism in the sense that everything, nothing exists. It's all, it's all in the minds of people, as it were. It, the Buddha doesn't deny the reality of, of the trees that you're looking at. What he's saying is, you can only know the trees in your way. You can't get beyond your own consciousness. It's you who are cre actually creating the tree that you know. Now, when we take this into the problem of suffering, the problem of unsatisfactoriness, the problem of a certain lack, a certain um, existential angst, you see, whatever, whatever we're suffering from, when you take that into... Then you realise that actually it's not being created by the world. It's being created by the way we are relating to what's coming in and to our lives. So all our suffering is made by us. Nobody can make us suffer. Huh? So this is a real uh, breakthrough when we actually realise that nobody can cause us psychological pain. They can, help, they can give us a hell of a lot of physical pain, <laughs> but they can't actually cause the psychological pain. That psychological pain is being produced by an internal mechanism which we have learnt uh, within ourselves. We've probably been, been taught how to do it by our parents, etc., etc., but it's something that we're creating in ourselves. From a process of awakening point of view, if we weren't creating our suffering and it was somebody else who was doing it, then you'd have to get rid of that somebody else. Right? And if there's anybody in the world whom you thought was creating suffering for you, before your suffering would end, you'd have to get rid of them. So there'd be no way, really, to full liberation until you annihilated everybody. Eh? If, <laughs> if somebody out there can cause you suffering, then there's always that potential of suffering. What the Buddha's saying is that he attained a state where, as he puts it, the world argues with him. He doesn't argue with the world. He's not in contradiction with the world, is it? It's not that people didn't hate him 
uh, Devadatta, the dastardly fellow, who was a monk. <laughs> he went to the Buddha and thought he was getting a bit old and he was getting all loose and losing, losing his grip. So he said, what we need to do is get back to the originals, back to the original order, living in a forest, vegetarianism, uh, just rag robes, sleep under a tree, you know, back to the old hard stuff because it all gone soft. See? So the Buddha actually allowed it. He said, well, if you want to do those, they're called dutangas, they're those extra special exercises like never taking a lying position. He said, you can do it. But uh, I think David Arthur had in his mind that it was his time now to take over the order. He was a cousin, actually. So he tried to kill him, didn't he? Three times, heaven's sake. Rolled a boulder down a hill, caught his toe. <laughs> so it wasn't as though the Buddha didn't, have, didn't create enemies, but his relationship to Devadatta, we can presume, uh, was not angry, hateful, vengeful, etc., etc. So, if we now uh, take the position that the world I'm experiencing is the world that I'm creating, the world I'm experiencing is the world that I am actually creating. This allows us now, gives us a, a way of, if I'm creating this world and I'm not experiencing happiness, I'm not experiencing peace, then I must be doing something wrong. Okay? So we then have to look at the mechanisms within our own psychology to see how is it that we're creating this suffering. And that's what we're doing with Vipassana. That's the purpose of Vipassana, is to see how we create suffering and how we begin to undermine our suffering. And there's two, two ways in which we better our situation. The first one is dealing with the suffering that we have. And the second one is increasing our uh, bank of joy, love, compassion and peacefulness. Right? And the two go hand in hand. So... What we're, what we're practicing is allowing any feelings that we perceive as being unpleasant, downright painful and horrible, we're allowing them to just manifest. When they're mental feelings, we can begin to realize that just in their manifestation, just in their expression, is their healing. And this is a, I mean, this is a real radical way of looking at therapy. Because normally speaking, we would um, we'd be trying to do something about our psychology. Whereas what the Buddha says, all you've got to do is endure it. All you've got, <laughs> you got to do is sit in the midst of the flames and have the patience to allow them to burn out. Now if it were just that, it would only be psychology. It would only be uh, you know, something that might help people to become a bit calmer, less stressful, all the usual stuff. But in seeing the mechanism, in actually perceiving how the flames were um, built in the first place, allows us to undermine that whole process of continuously making further flames, further bonfires for ourselves. And that process is this business of desire. Now, it's sometimes translated as craving, which is, you know, sometimes a bit over the top. Uh, desire, uh, it's not, you see, desire in English, of course, has a, has a good meaning, you know, uh, the desire to be compassionate, what's wrong with that, you see. So this tanha is the desire which is coming from a wrong understanding of seeking happiness in the wrong place. It's a specific desire. It's a desire based on um, believing that we can create some sort of permanent happiness, permanent emotional, emotional uh, thought happiness. 
right? By using the world around us. Hmm? Tea, biscuits, all that sort of stuff. And uh, that desire is coming from this misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of where we can seek this happiness. And what that does is, the misunderstanding uh, creates the idea, creates the notion of a me. So this is where we get a bit, um, uh, shall we say, confuses people, this, this, this teaching about not-self. And often people turn it into a, uh, a metaphysics, like there is no self. But the Buddha never says that anywhere. Right? He's simply using it as a tool, as a way of exploring what is, what is real about what I'm experiencing. Hmm? So all he's saying is, Whatever arises and passes away, right, necessarily can't be a self. Because what we mean by a self is something substantial, something that continues, something that doesn't arise and pass away, isn't born, doesn't die. It's the same definition as somebody might call a spirit or a soul. Hmm? So in our meditation, when we're looking at what we're experiencing and we're creating that distance and we're seeing that it's arising and passing away, whether it's an intellectual reflection or not, we're actually experiencing the process of not me, not mine. Hmm? As soon as you distance from something, as soon as you make it an object that you're looking at, then it can't be that which is no, that which is looking. Okay? And that distance, that separation, uh, is a liberation, even no matter how small it might be, it's a liberation at some point from the notion of the self as feeling, the self as an emotion, the self as thought. I think, therefore I am. I feel, therefore I am. You know, I am. You see, every time we say something like, oh, I'm really depressed, you're lost. You are depressed. What can you do about it? Now you're in there. You've defined yourself as being depressed. But as soon as you distance from it, within yourself, as it were, and you say, there is depression, through this technique, say, of, of noting, or just... Just, just being able to distance yourself from it, uh, you're liberated from it. That doesn't mean to say it's not painful, it's still depression, but there's something missing from I am depressed. Huh? The, I, the I that identifies with something falls into a hell state. And that's what, if you, define a, if you define a hell state, what is it apart from thinking that you are the suffering you're, you're experiencing? When you come out of that, and it becomes an object, and there is depression, hmm? then we can say that's purgatory. Yeah? I've always believed in Catholic doctrine. <laughs> hell is... Hell, whether it's a place or not, is immaterial. Hell is a place where you don't see an exit. Uh, that's it. You're in, you're in... You know, if you get completely panicked, that's it, you're in hell. Whereas purgatory is where it's still very painful, but at least, you know, things are going to come to an end. So our uh, position in Vipassana is to allow things to arise, but also to create that distance so that we know that this is not me, it's not mine, and itself is not a self. An emotion is not a self. Does an emotion know itself? I mean, does an emotion go around saying, I'm depressed? I mean, you know... Does a knee know it's hurting? See? Does a knee know anything? My knees don't know anything at all. <laughs> so there's something in us that knows this stuff and then makes this wrong 
relationship. So at fundament, you could say, at, at, at the basic position is that our relationship to the world is, is wrong. It's all to do with relationship. And what I discover is that everything that I'm creating now, right, no matter what it is, whether it's beautiful or sad or whatever, is actually being created by me. And if I can get that relationship right, then I should end up somewhere different. I should, I should be experiencing the world in a different way. So that's what, uh, you know, this whole process is about. It's about changing our relationship to the world. And when the Buddha uh, awakens from that uh, delusion, right, he is, um, his first thought is, you know, who can I, who can I help? Who can I, who can I tell this to, the good news? So it's not as though the meditation, this process of, purification, the process of insight, is actually isolating us. It's not, it's not that it's drawing us into this little cave where we can be happy by ourselves. Hmm? We're a horde of little peanuts and things like that. It's something which immediately reconnects us with the world. And this is really important for us to do because that's the practice of metta. And the vipassana uh, has a danger to it. The danger is that in finding this position of the objective observer, that objectivity which in its, uh, which in its virtuous form is equanimity, it's the ability to receive, to bear without reaction, hmm? turns, very, turns easily into a sort of um, uh, a disinterest, um, I'm looking for the other word, not callous, um, uh, no, no, you're jumping ahead of me there. <laughs> I'm not indifferent. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a, an indifference, you see. And I always like to tell the tale about um, about these two little experiences I had. I was in one monastery you see, with this monk, and there was a, a cat, and it was playing around with a mouse, which was obviously it killed it. You see, and I, I just said, didn't, "Didn't you stop that?" You see, and he said, "No." He said, "Cat karma and mouse karma." <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just the way it is. That's life. You, see, you can't stop it. No, I said, fair enough, you know. And uh, I was in another monastery where uh, we were sitting on a bench, a couple of monks, a few monks. And suddenly this, this cat jumped out and jumped on this bird. And this monk, as flash of lightning, got up and gave this cat one hell of a kick. And uh, got hold of the bird, uh, but it, uh, its lungs had been punctured. And very, very beautiful. He just held it up with its wings sort of spaled out, you see, and chanted the, the verses that we do when somebody dies, anichavatta sankara, all compounded things arise and pass away. So he didn't believe in cat karma and bird karma. <laughs> and, the, and the distinction there was, of course, the relationship, that connection, you see, that connection which comes through love, compassion and joy. So you have to be, you, have to be, you must make sure that whenever you do vipassana, there's always some point at the end, where you reconnect with the world. And that's in the Eightfold Path. So the right understanding begins with uh, reflecting about uh, our lives, and the Vipassana takes it into an experiential understanding of the way things are. But somehow that has to reconnect. Hmm? And that's done through the second of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is this right attitude. And you build up your attitude through your intentions. Okay? So. So as soon as he'd understood what he 
what he'd experienced, the intention arose, you know, just naturally, who can I help? Who, who can I teach this to? So if we, can, if we can do that at the end of a sitting and to translate what we've understood into an attitude, then it's easy for it to be, tra- to be translated further into the next three steps of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Hmm? Now what we find is that um, these, these steps also, as it were, turn back on themselves. So what in Vipassana we come to understand this relationship, this interrelatedness of things, so long as it stays as some sort of understanding, even at an, even at, um, an experiential level, although you can argue that once it's become experiential, it's, it's got to move into an attitude. Uh, the Zen would say that Within, with, with wisdom compassion arises naturally you don't have to play at it you don't have to work at it but even so if it remains at a level of, um, of, of just an understanding of interrelatedness it doesn't actually affect the world but when it moves into the heart the expression of interrelatedness is love that's what love is it's, it's knowing that interrelatedness and when, when, when that attitude is, is set then it moves easily into right speech, right action, and right livelihood, you see. Now, having said that, the world we experience is, the, is, is within this little bubble that I call my, my awareness. Huh? Uh, the fact of the matter is that this little bubble does have a relationship with all the other bubbles, and with the big bubble that we call nature. There's some connection there which we have. So that when we look into ourselves and want to know what our karma is, meaning what, what is our conditioning, hmm, that conditioning manifests in us as emotions and thoughts and feelings, etc. But of course, this, ha- this resonates back out into the world. And that's why the world begins to mirror back to us our, our conditioning. Huh? So if, if a person is an argumentative type, then you know, he, shouldn't, he shouldn't be too upset if people don't go near him. Huh? If, a person, if a person is a loving type, then she shouldn't be surprised that people congregate around her. I mean, that's, pretty, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But you have to be careful here because... Once we put an action into the world, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have the effect that we wanted it to have, because it goes into a set of situations over which we have no power whatsoever. So even though you might do something out of the the greatest charity of your heart, don't be surprised if somebody hates you for it, right? Because <laughs> in doing so, unwittingly, you've stood on their toes. Yeah. Because what we're doing is we're, we're putting an action, we're putting a, uh, um, an action of thought, or even of thought actually, but, but especially of speech and action, into a situation over which we do not know the consequences. Hmm. So we, it, it wouldn't be right to think that things that happen to us are entirely to do with our karma are entirely to do because of my past actions. Okay? But we can say that the way I am inside myself is the product of my own karma, is the product of my own uh, manufacturing. You see? So, when the Buddha talks about in this world, 
there is suffering in this world, there is the end of suffering. He's actually talking about the karma, which is to do with our state of happiness or lack of it. Yeah? Do you want to turn the light on? Yeah. I'm beginning to talk to ghosts. <laughs> now I think you have to press one of those, the middle one, the middle one. The middle one, that's it, and turn it. Hey. Enlightenment. <laughs> Just like that. Turn this way. Uh, so, <coughs> um, we, we, we started off by sort of understanding that the Buddha has defined or uh, deconstructed this human being into these five different areas, three of which we have uh, no control over because it's a given. So the body is a given and our contact with the body is a given. You can't do anything about that. It's, 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 it's the way that the mind contacts uh, the physical world. So for instance, even when as you go around you might um, you know, hug a tree, you see. Now, the feeling that you get of a tree, the feeling you get of wood, right, is something that the mind is making up from its contact with wood. It's not necessarily true that the wood actually feels like that. Somebody else might come along and think it's soft or hard. It doesn't really matter. But even in, even in basic percepts, um, we're always creating the world that we are living in. Okay? And somewhere along the line, we're making this mistake, and we create these conditionings within ourselves, this emotional thought life, and then we project this onto the world. Okay? And that's where our contact is. And because we're projecting it onto the world into an unknown, we don't know the consequences of what will happen if we do something. Um, what comes back to us may seem to be unjust, or it may seem to be just pure luck. Hmm? Like when you buy a lottery ticket, I mean, why, why should you win? You know, why you? Why not me? <laughs> so you, you don't know what the effect of an action will be, but you can know about it within yourself. And that's the important bit because it's within ourselves that we either create this happiness or unhappiness. If we move from an intention which is wholesome, it will have a wholesome effect upon our inner life. And that's the important thing. And if we move from an intention which is unwholesome, it will have an unwholesome effect upon our inner life. And it's our inner life that we're actually experiencing. See? It's our inner life which is either causing us pain or causing us joy. So the, the meditation is actually taking us inward to find these mechanisms, to find the way that we're creating this world, and hopefully we begin to undo them. And the positive side is, you know, the development of the seven facts of enlightenment, the calmness, the steadiness of attention, uh, the, the, the curiosity to want to know how things happen. But you'll notice that in the seven facts of enlightenment, love is not included. See, love is not because love is to do with the secondary part as to the relationship the enlightened mind has with the world. In order to get that, there must be this purity. Okay, so that purity is partly to do with the state of the heart in the terms of um, getting rid of all these impure emotions, allowing them to burn out, but it's also to do with the way we see things, to see things as they really are. And so, in a sense, you, could, you, you might argue that love or compassion for oneself 
underpins the whole process because in a sense uh, we're having compassion for ourselves and wanting to get out of suffering but it's not as though in order to be enlightened we have to develop metta see? metta is, is the word for, for love that's something we do afterwards in order to, to cement you might say the new understanding we have into a new relationship so that's the process that's the spiritual process we are inwardly looking to see where we're doing things wrong part of that process is to bear what is already wrong to allow it to burn out and then when we come out of that to re-establish or to uh, to, uh, to try to uh, refine our relationship with the world on a more positive level see it's as simple as that just like that um if, if Buddha said that, that mind creates the, the, the nature of the world outside, then what, what did Buddha say? Well, no, you see, now the thing about the Buddha is, is that he doesn't get into metaphysics. So if you, ask, if you were to ask the Buddha, you know, um, is the world eternal or is it finite or who creates the world out there, he's just silent, you see, because it's not something that you can directly, you can directly know. He's only interested in what you can directly know. Everything else must necessarily be inference. Okay? And remember that the Buddha's, the arrow, the point, the, the point of the arrow of his teaching is simply this word dukkha, this word that we translate as unsatisfactoriness. Hmm? That's all he's concerned with. Uh, he's quite clear about it. He says he, in, in the Pali, in the, in the language, he reduces his teaching just to three words, dukkha, dukkha, naroda, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and the end of it. So trying to, um, I mean in later Buddhism it does become a bit more metaphysical and stuff, you know. But in the Buddha's own specific teaching, as it comes through in our tradition anyway, it's always grounded in individual psychology. It doesn't really move off that. So even when, even when he's asked what happens to him when he dies, does he... You know, this was what was known as the quadrilemma. In the West, we only have a dilemma, but in the East, they have a quadrilemma. So, does he <laughs> does he exist? Does he not exist? Does he both somehow exist and not exist? And does he neither exist nor not exist? It's a killer, isn't it? And uh, it, well, it's, he's silent. Then wouldn't you be? <laughs> no, no, there's no God. See, he won't go into that, you see. He doesn't answer questions like who created the world. Or what created mind? Yeah, he doesn't, no, it's not. No, no, there is mind. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> see? So does he see mind as separate to what is not mind? Well, now that's, uh, <clears throat> that is the, you know, the question about what is the definition of Nibbana. And, uh, um, our tradition tends to be very coy in describing it and he tends to follow the Buddha's pattern of saying what it's not right? I think in, in, the, in the religious tradition it's called the apophatic tradition, not this, not that okay, so he's not born he doesn't die, he's not compounded and he's not conditioned right? but what it is, well who knows yeah. but he definitely says that it's not annihilation now, uh, the Buddhists at his time, or his, or his teachings, 
was often confused with nihilation because there were nihilists in the, at that time. There were materialists, nihilists. I don't know whether there were socialists, but there were definitely. <laughs> but there was all sorts, all sorts of beliefs. And um, when he's approached, he says, "Well, you know, you're just teaching a form of nihilism." He says, "No." He says, "The only thing that's annihilated is greed, hatred, and delusion." And uh, it must have got um, uh, very confusing for people uh, who listened to these other teachers who would either say, yes, there is, or no, there isn't. And the Jains have a lovely uh, comment on Buddhism. He says, well, these people say that there is no soul and there is no afterlife. And we say there is a soul and there is not a afterlife. And the Buddhists can't make their mind up. same time as the kind of beginnings of, of, of say Judaism as an example of another yeah Moses um, around the same time in the I think it was Moses a, a uni Moses I'm not sure what the right word is where there is only one well it was the axial age wasn't it Moses Socrates Lao Tzu out of interest what's her name the writer um, the history of God who am I thinking of yeah, now she's written a wonderful book on the actual age. It's worth reading. Axel. Axel. Mm. Karen Armstrong. Armstrong, the person? Karen. Mm. Well, that's this business of um, rebirth. <coughs> and, um, yeah, there's rebirthing. Um, we understand rebirth when you understand what's happening now what's happening now is that we're being reborn every moment into the next moment and we're not different from the past moment but we're not the same hmm? and all the Buddha say, all Buddhism says is that upon death it's just the body that goes and the mind gets reborn, seeks another place to be reborn. And from the Buddhist point of view, it's this rebirth, this constant going on, this samsara, which is the product of this misunderstanding. See? So it's like mastering this, then it says, well, stop, you don't have to reincarnate anymore. Mm. Get this. That's right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, Buddhism does split off into two different ideas when that when somebody is fully liberated in in our tradition uh, nothing is really said really nothing it's more like nothing can be said the tathagata that's how that's how he referred to himself translates as the transcendent the one who's transcended and he himself doesn't say much he doesn't really there is a passage where he hints at what you know happens to him after death um Unfortunately, it doesn't come to mind, so <laughs> I'll look it up one day. Uh, but in the Mahi... But also, but if so, in oneness, then, that we're all born, and so then when we stop reincarnating, we'll just become consciousness, or? Become one big splodge. Yes. <laughs> no, no, yeah. that, that's metaphysics. Oh, you don't know, do you? Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's nice to think about those things, because it comforts, but actually we don't know. 
Well, it, it, you know, the word soul has a lot of meanings. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's best just to think of it as mind. When we say mind here, we mean the whole... Everything that we've talked about now, when I was talking about the five candors, uh, the, the, um, uh, how the mind contacts the physical world, percepts, feelings, uh, our volitional conditionings caused by acts of will and cognition, all that's reborn. And it's being reborn now. So mind in, in, in the Buddha centers, that sense is actually kind of different to how we would describe it in the literal sense, I suppose, in English, in the sense that mind in English means brain, intelligence, intellect. That's right, yes, I know. It's, we, it's difficult. It's spiritual nature, really. <coughs> I wouldn't go that far either. No, essence, mind... Essence. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Is it... <laughs> <laughs> It's the heart, it's the heart mind, it's, it's the, the it's the whole psychic, it's the psyche. And heart. Yeah. Okay. You see, in the old definitions, in the Greek definition, there was soma, the body. There was psyche, which did not split mind off from heart. It was one thing. And there was pneuma, which was the unknown. It was the spirit, the unconditioned. Okay? This was translated into Christianity as... Uh, corpus, yeah, the body. Uh, what was the other one? What's spiritus? Uh, mens. Mens. Well, I won't go that far either. <laughs> and mens, mind. And it's only, I think, I think I'm right in saying it's only Descartes uh, who split the mind off from the heart. Hmm? I think, therefore, I am. And we've been stuck with that split. So often in the East, when somebody says to you, I, I think this is so, they don't point here, they point here. The point of the heart. And um, it's easy once you've separated the mind from the heart to realize or to begin to believe that animals who don't have a mind must be machines. Yeah. You divest them of any, any soul, soulness or whatever. So that's how we got to this position with nature, you see, abusing it. Um, uh, no, I, I was trying to, trying to say that you can know, it's, it's a sort of tautology really, but you can only know what you can know. You can't go beyond your own awareness. So if you want to understand, for example, hunger, hmm. you have to experience it. Really? Hmm. Otherwise it remains a conceptual idea, doesn't it? <coughs> everything you see and what we do is we presume that because we have a concept of something that we actually know it so we, we often make that mistake if you can describe it if you can sort of give it a sentence <clears throat> you think that somehow you know it uh, we do it on very basic things like um, you might pass say one of these flowers and you might name it uh, primrose, and there's there's a 
Like you think that because you've named it, because you've recognised the primrose, that you've actually experienced that primrose. But you haven't looked at it, you haven't smelt it, you haven't felt it. So you haven't a clue what that primrose actually is. You've simply deposited your concept on it and have been satisfied with that as an experience of that primrose. And that's why you'll find all Buddhist insight meditations are always trying to ground people back into the body. To recontact our physicality. Yeah, I was just um, of the mind like is there does in Buddhism do they say that there is some kind of a higher awareness or something like God? Because I feel something is missing <laughs> if it's <coughs> in the mind. Well, um, as I say, it sort of re- it remains a p- uh, in, in Theravada Buddhism, Nibbana mm. is, is only described in its negative form. But interestingly enough, you do find in our own scriptures a definition of uh, something which is uh, full of light, awareness, no boundary. Hmm? And uh, remember that um, although we talk about this experience as being full of unsatisfactoriness and that it's changing uh, and Nibbana is described in the opposite there is no unsatisfactoriness and there's no change but it's still not a self yeah? and that, that usually throws us because we still think there's going to be some sort of being some sort of uh, uh, something that you can describe in Nibbana so, for instance, when Sariputta is asked, how can you talk about the bliss of Nibbana, the joy of Nibbana, when there's no emotions there? So he says, well, it's the very absence of emotions which is the bliss of Nibbana. Now, how can we begin to understand that? When you're in a good meditative situation within yourself and you've become the observer, and you're observing emotions, okay, and you're observing thought, and you're observing feelings in the body, and when everything drops to a calmness and you can still feel these things as objects, okay, ask yourself, what's the mood of the observer? What's, what's the mood of the observer? So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. (laughs) May you be liberated from all your suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.